Hi there. Did you know that in Jewish history, there was also a president and vice president known as the Nasi and Av Bastin? Today we're going to talk a little bit about that. Good afternoon. It's Tuesday, 12.15 p.m. It's that time of the week and it's time for lunch and learn. We're here for another session of studying Torah together. Hi Gail, hi Jody, hi Roy, and being that today is a very crucial day for us Americans when it will hopefully be decided who will stand at the helm of our nation. Today we will look at the Jewish leader who stood at the helm of the Jewish nation or one of the tops up there. We'll talk about a president and vice president in Jewish teachings their character, and their influence. We're here for our Lunch and Learn, our weekly study session, and even today when the media is getting a lot of attention, we are taking time off to study Torah. See what the Torah has to teach us, how the Torah is relevant and practical to our lives. And we'll begin with a little drink. If you have something, say a bracha, say a blessing, Baruch Atah Adonai, Eloheinu Malach Olam Shakol Reminds us that ultimately the decisions are in the hand of God. Yes, we got to do our part and voice our opinion and cast our ballots, but at the end of the day, it's up to Hashem, it's up to God. The heart of the ministers and kings is in the hand of God. That's what the verse, that's what the Torah says. So, whoever is going to be in office, Hashem will be at his side and help us no matter what happens. So l'chaim to that and we're getting ready to begin our lunch and learn number 113. This is about 30 weeks that we are on live Facebook for our lunch and learn instead of at synagogue. I think it was like number 82 or 83 when we first began here. Okay, hopefully very soon we'll be able to be back at um, at shul, at synagogue, with a delicious, fresh lunch. But uh, now we'll begin our lunch and learn. We'll continue on Facebook Live as long as we have to. So here we are. Hopefully you received an email with the source sheet attached. If not, you can download it here. There's a link from this post. The download, you can print it out to be able to follow along with your source sheet. Today's lesson, as I mentioned, is about a Jewish leader, a Jewish um, sage who lived during the first century. He lived a long life, approximately 90 years at that time. It was quite long. His name was Yoshua. Yoshua ben Hanania. Yoshua, the son of Hanania. I have the name Yeshua as well. My full name is Yeshua Heschel. Heshi is just a nickname. Yeshua. His name was Yeshua and a very important figure in Jewish history known as Yeshua ben Hanania. We're going to learn about him. Today's lesson is divided into four sections. We're going to learn about his youth. We're going to learn about his character, his position, and some of his teachings. And we'll see how all of these are relevant to us living almost about 1900 years after his passing. How his life can teach us 
and maybe tell us a little bit about the Jewish view on president, vice president, and the transmission of power. Transition of power. Excuse me. Okay. So here we go. We are on our source sheet, source number one. So the first century is just about the time, the end of the second temple era in Israel. In Jerusalem, you had the temple, the second temple. And here is a man, Yehoshua, the son of Hananiah. Let's first take a look at source number one. Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah. The Mishnah, this is a quote from chapter, uh, Ethics of Our Fathers, chapter 2, where his teacher is praising him. His teacher was Rabbi Yochanan, and Rabbi Yochanan is saying about him, Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah, source 1. Hi, Amy. Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah, happy is the woman that gave birth to him. Quite interesting. Happy is the woman who gave birth to him. Seemingly trying to say how special of a person he was, that his mother must be kveling, we say in Yiddish. Must be really proud, having a lot of nachas. Happy is the woman. The woman that gave birth to him is quite happy and lucky to have such a son. But it's a rare kind of expression. You want to talk about the person himself. You praise the person. Why does he go to the mother? Tells us Rashi. Commentary. When his mother was pregnant with him, she used to pass by each of the study halls in her town and say to the sages, please pray that this child within me should become a wise sage. So even before Yeshua was born, his mother was on the job making sure that this child would grow up to be a wise sage. And that's why when his teacher praised him, he said, happy is the woman. Because the, 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 she was the one that put in the effort that she should be, he should grow up to the kind of person that he was. Even before he was born, while she was still pregnant with him. She was praying for him, making sure that great people were praying for him. And as, as it says, the number was 24. There were 24 study halls that she would pass by and say, Rabbi, sages, Please pray for my son. So the credit goes to her. Happy is the woman who gave birth to him. She is credited with his success. Because she invested in him. Even before he was born. That leads us to source number two. A woman's conduct during pregnancy affects the child. The custom of righteous women is that during the time of their pregnancy, each one increases the care with which she attends to matters of Torah and mitzvahs for the benefit of the child. During pregnancy, they are especially cautious not to stare at unclean things, but rather to look at things that are clean and holy. This is a teaching of the Rebbe, and this is today scientifically proven, and you know, medical field is much more open with this. Um, how even before a child is born, while still in utero, the child hears and is impressed, gets affected, influenced by his surroundings or her surroundings. A child's brain, a child's heart, the impressions, the first impressions, are most important and vital. And that is why the Rebbe is saying here that how a woman behaves or conduct during pregnancy 
because the child, the fetus, is getting its life from the mother directly, of course, after birth as well, but even especially during the months of pregnancy. So the woman, the mother, should be extra careful to increase in matters of Torah and mitzvahs, giving the child the benefit of Torah and good deeds even before being born. Being careful, the mother, not to look at certain immoral or un, not proper things, even to the extent of trying to stare, if you go to the zoo, to stare at kosher animals because there's something impure about animals that are you know, very unclean, not kosher. So there's such a custom. And this is, the custom is traced back to this teaching of Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah. And why was he so successful? As we'll see what kind of great person he was. Because his mother was careful during the months of pregnancy, praying, getting others to pray, that he should grow up in purity and become wise in the study of Torah. <clears throat> Another quote about his youth, source number three. He saw Rabbi Yeshua and said, there was a sage, Rabbi Dosa, and he was saying about Rabbi Yeshua, I remember that his mother used to bring his cradle to the synagogue so that his ears would cleave to the words of Torah, not just when she was pregnant with him, schlepping around to the study halls. After he was born, she would take his carriage, take his cradle, where he would sleep and crib and place him in the synagogue, place him in the study halls. Yes, the child was not old enough to understand what was going on, to pray, to understand the words of prayer, but being in an atmosphere of holiness where words of Torah, words of prayers were being uttered. Those words, the effect, the atmosphere makes a great impression on a child. The child's brain is like wet, wet cement. And first impressions, you never get a chance. You never get a second chance for first impressions. So it is crucial that as a child is being, is being um, growing inside of a mother's womb, and, shortly, and especially when they're young, just born, that they should be surrounded with good things, with holy things. And that is why, source 4, it is customary to hang a shir la ma'alotz. Perhaps you've seen this on a carriage or now they make these with a little clip. You can clip it to the carriage or to the crib or to the room where the mother and the baby, the newborn baby is. These, this is a, a card with a chapter of Psalms which prays for protection. Source for it is customary to hang a shirla malot in the room of the new mother and the newborn. It is true that the child cannot yet distinguish between light and dark. Nevertheless, since he has already come into this world and he possesses eyes or she possesses eyes with which to see the world, we should see to it that before his eyes should be the letters of the Aleph base. The holy letters of the Aleph base are not just letters like ABC that are just uh, symbols. The letters, the shapes, the designs of the letters are divine and holy. Seeing these letters, being surrounded, hearing words of Torah, hearing soft Jewish music can shape his character, can make a great impression on the young child in utero or especially after he was born. And really it's not just 
once pregnancy begins, but it goes back to the beginning of pregnancy, to the creation of the child. As Rabbi Yeshua himself, knowing the great investment that his mother did for him when she was carrying him and when he was a young baby. Rabbi Yeshua was asked, source five, from the sages of Alexandria of Egypt. They asked Rabbi Yeshua, what should a person do to have good children? This is recorded in the Talmud. Obviously this is a teaching for us. What should a person do to have good children? The question that we all are asking. How do I make sure my children grow up to be good, fine human beings and proud Jews? Rabbi Yeshua said, he should marry a woman who is fit for him and sanctify himself during marital relations. When the creation of the child is taking place, it should be done in a befitting manner. The sages of Alexandria said, many people have done so, but it did not help. It wasn't enough just to sanctify yourself. Rabbi Yeshua said, they should pray for mercy from the one to whom children belong. They should pray, they should daven, they should pray to Hashem to teach us that one without the other does not suffice. We cannot merely pray to God that everything should be well. And we cannot merely sanctify ourselves in the creation of the child. We need to have both. But praying is not alone, not enough. Someone once came to the Rebbe with a young child and said, how can I make sure to grow up to be a good Jew, a good child, with a fine character? And the Rebbe said, you're coming to me now. You come to me nine months before the child is born. That's when the work begins. What does that mean exactly? It's for another discussion. But Jewish law teaches us how the creation of a child should be done with sanctity in a dignified and moral manner in a loving and caring, selfless manner, not just from indulgence. And those traits, those feelings, are carried into the child. That finishes our first section here. Before we talk about Rabbi Yeshua's actual personality, Rabbi Yeshua's personality was credited to his mother. His mother invested in him during pregnancy, and when he was born, that he should be surrounded and be influenced by good things, by holy words, words of Torah and prayer. And his, her son, Rabbi Yeshua, taught us that that is effective. Of course, in addition to prayer. To pray when we light our Shabbos candles, Friday evening, Friday night, uh, late afternoon, before the nightfall, before sunset. To pray. Pray for their success. Pray that just as you're lighting a candle for them, their mazel and their neshamas, their souls, should, should, shall, shall shine brightly. Okay, moving along, talking about his character a little bit. Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania. Walk into any yeshiva, any study, all you'll hear. Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Liezer. They were the prime disciples of Rabbi Yochanan. In previous lessons, we spoke about Hillel. We spoke about Rabbi Akiva. We spoke about Rabbi Meir recently. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Rabbi Akiva was a student of Rabbi Yeshua. And Rabbi Yeshua was a student of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabbi Yochanan lived, was the leader during the destruction of the Jewish, of the temple. And Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Eliezer, they were two of his primary students. Source number six. Rabbi Yeshua was walking along with his teacher, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. 
We have someone in our shul, Yochanan, or his father, Yochanan. Very Jewish name. So Rabbi Yeshua, source 6, so actually Rabbi Yeshua lived during temple times. He was a Levi. There are Kohanim, the priests. You have Levim, Levites. And you have the Israelites. Kohanim are descendants of Aaron, Akohen, the brother of Moses. Levites are descended from the tribe of Levi, which is a son from all the 12 tribes. One tribe is Levi, the third son of Jacob. Moses was a Levi. And then you have everybody else, like me, the Israelites, just a plain Jew. And Yeshua, Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah was a Levite, which in temple times meant, today there are also certain privileges, but in temple times, they would sing, as we discussed in a previous lesson, that the Levites had an orchestra and a choir singing during the offerings in the temple. And Rabbi Yeshua was one of them. And he was very involved in the temple service. And to him, the destruction of the temple was, <clears throat> was felt most. Source 6, Rabbi Yeshua, the, the, the Midrash tells us, Rabbi Yeshua saw the holy temple destroyed and said, Woe to us, for this is destroyed, the place where all of Israel's sins are forgiven. There was the altar, the Mizbeach. Somebody sinned. There was a, there was a, a procedure. Different animals were brought, different things, ways of bringing an offering to, to bring on an atonement from Hashem. And he was right there singing along with the choir members. And now that the temple is destroyed, he says, Woe is to us! This place where Israel's sins are forgiven is no longer here. So his teacher responded, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said, My son, do not be distressed, for we have a form of atonement just like it. Yes, the physical temple is not there, but we still have a form of atonement just like it. You can imagine, just like what was happening in the temple. And what is it? Acts of kindness. Acts of kindness achieves exactly, just like it, the form of atonement that was during the temple time is being bringing up offerings on the altar. Shows us the power of an act of kindness. And Rabbi Yeshua internalized this teaching from his teacher Rabbi Yochanan. He lived a, kind, a life of kindness. Rabbi Yeshua was a very gentle person, loved by the, by the masses. And Rabbi Yeshua taught one of his famous teachings, Source 7, more than the rich man does for the pauper, the pauper does for the rich man. Wow, the rich man or whoever has the money is giving to a poor person. You would think, I'm giving. I'm the one providing. So who's giving who? The rich man is giving the poor man. Tells us of Yeshua, no. You are providing. But more than the, what the rich man is giving to the poor man, the poor man giving the rich man an opportunity to perform an act of kindness is giving him much more than he's receiving. When somebody gives tzedakah, yes, they're giving tzedakah. But what they are getting in return for that act of kindness is way more. More than what the rich man is doing with the pauper, the pauper is doing with the rich man. Giving charity and doing acts of kindness is like an investment. You reap the benefits. Much more than what you invested. This teaching he receives from his teacher, whatever Yeshua personified, and he lived a life of kindness. 
He was very gentle, very humble, and very forgiving. Source number eight. Rabbi Yeshua, during the different debates in the study hall, they were quoting, they were discussing a argument of Beis Shammai and Hillel. We mentioned Hillel. Hillel founded a yeshiva called Bet Hillel, the house study of Hillel, study hall of Hillel. And then they had a yeshiva from Shammai, Bet Shammai, and their students continued for many generations. And there were hundreds of disagreements between them. And one time when discussing, sorry, discussing the opinion of Bet Shammai, Rabbi Yeshua expressed himself, I am ashamed, source 8, Rabbi Yeshua said, I am ashamed of your words, Bet Shammai. Bet Shammai, I'm ashamed of your words. How can you say such a thing? It's embarrassing. But then eventually somebody explained it to him and he realized not something to be ashamed about, even if there is another opinion. Rabbi Yeshua immediately went and prostrated himself on the graves of Beis Shammai and said, I humble myself before you. Throughout his days, his teeth darkened because of all of his fasts and he undertook to atone for having spoken inappropriately of Beis Shammai. One time, in the middle of studying, in the middle of debating, he said something improper. He said something not so honorable. Something derogatory. I'm, I'm an... I'm ashamed of your words. But to him, those words were inappropriate. And for the rest of his life, he seeked to atone that mistake, those words that were omitted. Fasted. Fasting is a way of, olden days especially, a way of depriving oneself from bodily pleasures, food. And his teeth would, would literally became dark from lack of nutrition. Why? Even after going to the graves and asking forgiveness. Because it was inappropriate. He, teach, he taught us that even if we disagree with somebody, and at first we don't understand what they're saying, we still need to be respectful. How we speak to them, how we approach them. We don't need a fast. That's not the way we do things nowadays. We can give, do other things, make peace, ask for forgiveness, give charity to atone. But definitely, though it's not always easy, even if we don't understand somebody else's opinion and it seems that we're ashamed, that's not the way we speak. Source number nine, Rabbi Yeshua taught us etiquette. A man should never enter his fellow's house suddenly, even if you feel comfortable. Never enter a fellow's house suddenly. Always knock on the door. Let them know you're about to enter so they can be properly prepared. Even if the door is not locked. Even if you have permission to enter. Give them some notice. A heads up. Rabbi Yeshua went and knocked on the door. The philosopher thought to himself, this can only be the manners of a sage. Without going into the details of that story, Rabbi Yeshua uh, <clears throat> was visiting somebody, a philosopher, that's the way of a sage, a wise man. We don't just enter suddenly to give the person some time to be prepared for somebody entering. And finally, for the section, source number 10, Rabbi Yeshua led many debates defending the Jewish religion. In his times, the Romans were ruling the land of Israel. Many of them were philosophers and had questions. He debated them. And 
Rabbi Yeshua expressed himself the following. In the following way, source 10. In all my days, no person defeated me in a verbal encounter for, except for a young boy and a young girl. We'll save the young boy incident for later. But we'll talk about the incident, the encounter with a young girl. One time, I was walking along the path and the path passed through a field and I was walking on it. A field, a field where things grew, a private field. A certain young girl said to me, Rabbi, my rabbi, isn't this a field? A field where wheat or barley, something is growing? This is not just a yard, not just an open place, this is a field. <clears throat> a field where things grow. Hebrew, sadeh, that's the Hebrew word, which refers to, <clears throat> excuse me, it's something where, where food is growing. I said to her, Rabbi Yeshua says, isn't it a well-trodden path? I'm walking on the path. I mean, I'm not walking on the wheat. She said to me, robbers like you have trodden it. Yes, it's a path. But who gave anyone permission to walk here? Yes, it's a path. But who was the first one to walk on the path? There's no permission. And Rabbi Yeshua said this, no one, no person ever defeated me in a verbal encounter, in a debate. But this young girl taught me a lesson. Just because you see a trodden path, just because others have done so before you, that does not give you a green light. We have to analyze each case. Is this permitted or not? Is this moral or not? Is this the right way or not? Just because others have done so, we don't just follow suit. Others were trotting the path, yes, but it was not proper. Just because there's a path trodden, it doesn't mean that we need to walk that path. We need to make sure the path that we're on is correct and the right path. Okay, moving on. Yabir Yeshua is teaching us again, as he always say, the stories, these little anecdotes that the Talmud records are little um, tidbits that help us along through our lives. If you have any comments or questions, disagreements, Feel free to place it in the comments as we move along. We'll discuss it a little later. We are on source number 11. Turn the page. Rabbi Yeshua, as we mentioned, we'll get to the presidency and the vice presidency in a couple of sources. Rabbi Yeshua described how life was during temple times. Our lives now revolve around our families, our work. He was busy in the temple. He was part of a choir and following step by step everything that was going on in the temple. And he describes one of the few descriptions we have of daily life sort of in the temple is that from the words of Rabbi Yeshua describing the holiday of Sukkot. We come, we're coming a couple of weeks ago from the holiday of Sukkot. Very busy time in the temple. And Rabbi Yeshua describes, source 11, when we would rejoice in the celebration of the drying of the water. Every day in the temple, there was the morning offering, the afternoon offering. Corresponding to that, we have the Shachris, the morning prayer. We have the afternoon Mincha prayer. And every day, together with the sacrifice, with the offerings, there was a libation, a wine libation, pouring wine over the altar. That's what the Torah says. Viniskoi yai in the Nesach, the libation was yai in wine. 
look in the book of Numbers in the portion of Pinchas, chapter 29. It's right there. And on Sukkot, on these seven days, in addition to wine being poured on the, ten- on the altar, there was a libation of water. Water which was drawn up from the spring. And it was done with great fanfare and joy. And it became known as the celebration of the drying of the water. Simchas Beis HaShoei. But till today it's celebrated all the nights of Sukkot, even though we don't have this service in the temple, but the joy is still here. That's why it's such a joyous holiday and culminates with Simchas Torah. So Rabbi Yeshua says, when we would rejoice in the celebration of the drying of the water during this holiday, we did not see sleep in our eyes the entire festival. It was done during the nighttime, and it was done with great joy, and the sages would juggle, and it was just a whole night dancing and singing. And during that time, he says, we would not sleep. We would merely doze on each other's shoulders. That's how packed the temple was, shoulder to shoulder. And all they did was just lean on each other's shoulder and take a little nap, power nap. And he goes on to describe, and then they would be present to see the morning offerings and the libations, and then they would be, and they would go to pray, and then they would go to eat something in the sukkah, and then they would come for the afternoon, and they would go study Torah, hear the study session, and then they would come back to the next night to see the drawing of the water and participate in the celebrations. Just gives us a little bit of a sense what life was back in the day. But that came to an end, and the temple was destroyed. And Rabbi Yeshua again being the kind and gentle leader, one of the leaders of the Jewish people, he addressed certain extremists who were very taken by the destruction of the temple, very saddened. And source number 12, they said to him, they said to Rabbi Yeshua, shall we meet from which offerings are sacrificed upon the altar? And now has ceased shall we drink wine which is poured as a libation upon the altar and now has ceased they said we're not going to drink any wine anymore we're not going to have any meat and uh, meat was brought as offerings if god doesn't have his meat if god doesn't have his wine we're going to enjoy wine we're going to enjoy meat we'll go for simple stuff no wine no meat for us until the temple is rebuilt taking a very extreme stance Rabbi Yeshua was called upon to help them, to set them on the right path. What does Rabbi Yeshua tell them in the middle of Source 12? Giving us general guidance for life. Rabbi Yeshua said to them, We will not drink water, since the water libation has ceased. You're telling me you're not going to have meat and wine. You shouldn't be drinking any water. Because water was also libation during the temple times, during this festival of Sukkot. As we just mentioned, describing the celebration. <laughs> Wine and meat you're fine with. And water you're going you're gonna to stay away from. Obviously, that's not an option. We've got to live. And they were silent. Rabbi Shua said to them, My children, come and I will tell you. To not mourn at all is impossible. But to mourn excessively as you are doing is also impossible. Yes, Got to mourn. We have to remember the good times. But to mourn excessively is also not possible. Torah says we should take a moderate path, somewhere in the middle, the derech o'em the middle path. And that is the Torah's 
rule in most situations when it comes to character traits. Not to be never angry, never get upset at anything. You, know, you got to educate your children sometimes. You got to show them a little restraint. If someone does something really wrong, they have to be reprimanded. Right? But not easily. Don't get mad at every little thing. Someone can be very charitable. Oh, mom, empty your bank accounts. Just send it off to Israel or send it to the poor. Then you'll be struggling with your family. It's not the way to do things. Somewhere in the middle. You can't say, oh, it's all for me. No. You got to give charity and generously, but with limits. And same thing here. That's more and that's it. Temple's destroyed. Life is over. No meat, no wine. Garnish. Rabbi Shua says that's not the Torah way. You could have meat. You could have wine. But we constantly remember. We mourn. We have one day a year. We have Tisha B'Av. We're dedicated to remembering the Temple in a practical way. Mourning, not wearing leather shoes, fasting and so on, reading the Lamentations. And at certain times, when we have a wedding, when we have a very joyous occasion, we remember we do something to remind us that our joy is not complete. Yes, we're celebrating a marriage. It's very joyous. But we smash a glass under the chuppah to remember that our joy is not intact since the destruction of the temple. Some have a custom that in their homes, they'll leave one spot in the home not fully painted or not fully designed to remember that it's not complete. Some do it right over the door, when you, the front door. That's the Torah way. Yes, we can't just forget about it. We need to remember. And there are many things in Jewish practice. Maybe a lot of them are not known. But they are traced back to remembering the way things were in the temple. The setup of a synagogue, the design of a synagogue is based around the temple. The beam on the middle is like the altar. You have the ark, which is like the real ark with the Torah, with the Ten Commandments. There's a near tummy. There's the, the, the light that's usually in front of the or the menorahs that are usually close to the front of the synagogue. Many of the designs, the, the setup of the synagogue is based on the temple. Many mitzvahs that we do today were done a little bit different, specifically in, in the temple, and we do it everywhere to remember the way it was done in the temple. That's what was Rabbi Yeshua's approach. Hi Jody. Hi Judy, excuse me. Welcome. We're in the source sheet, source number 13. At one point, after the destruction of the second temple, there was a uh, opportunity. The Romans, who were ruling the land of Israel, after quieting the, uh, you know, the, the Jewish, the, the zealots that were there during the times of the destruction, <clears throat> the Romans allowed, they gave permission for the Jews to go build up the temple. Once more, Jews were really excited. There were two brothers, uh, Papus and, and uh, Lilianos, I believe his name was. And the Jews began a pilgrimage going up to Jerusalem with gold and silver and they were going to get things started. But then there were the group of people, um, not getting into them, who were settled in the land of Israel, were not very fond of the temple because for various reasons and they cautioned the Romans and, and, and it, it came to a halt. But the people were very upset about this. They were all riled up because here they were finally given permission of the Romans to go ahead and have their temple back. And it was stopped short. 
and there was good chance for another rebellion, for a rebellion to start against the Romans, which at that point would not be good for the Jews, as we saw later, years later, with the Bar Kokhba rebellion. It was just not the right time for the building of the third temple. Hopefully very soon with the coming of Mashiach. And the people were all gathered over there in, in a place called uh, Rimon, I believe. The Medrash says. And the sages were getting together. Who can come here and calm the masses? That a rebellion should not break out. And as usual, Rabbi Yeshua was chosen. The one beloved and honored by the masses. Gentle soul. And a wise sage. Rabbi Yeshua stood up, was pushed up. The sages told him, go up. And Rabbi Yeshua began delivering a message. And he starts with a parable. Source 13. A lion was devouring prey. And a bone got stuck in its throat. It said, I will give a reward to anyone who removes it. Anyone that can come and remove this bone from my throat will get a reward. An Egyptian heron, a bird, put its long peak excuse me, into the mouth of the lion and extracted the bone. It said to the lion, give me my reward. You said if I get the bone out, I can get a reward. Give me my reward. The lion said to it, go and praise yourself. I went into the mouth of the lion in peace and I came out in peace. And there's no greater reward than that. Go around and tell everybody, hey, look how special I am. I made it into the lion's mouth and I came out intact. I came out unhurt. So too, Rabbi Yeshua tells the people, it is enough for us that we entered into this nation in peace and came out in peace. Yes, it would have been lovely. It would have been great if we could have had the temple rebuilt. But let's just be thankful that we're all alive, that we're here living in the land of Israel even after the destruction of the second temple, which by the way, Jews lived there for a good few hundred years. Great, uh, large population of Jewish people were living in Israel even after the destruction, first, second, third century, fourth century. Let's just be thankful for what we do have. Let's relax. The Romans are like the lion's, lion's mouth. We're right here under their jurisdiction, under their persecution, sort of. And we're still alive. We're here. They're allowing us to live. Let's just be happy with that. Now, in that, Rabbi Yeshua was successful in calming the, the people. Rabbi Yeshua was a member of the high court, the Sanhedrin, which was the supreme court, the high court, which at, after the destruction of the temple, without having the, uh, you know, they, they were basically the leaders of the Jewish people. We spoke about Hillel a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago. Hillel, and at the time after the destruction, around the time of the destruction of the temple, the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, moved from Jerusalem, from the Temple Mount, to a place called Yavne, somewhere in central Israel. Yavne, I believe till today there is such a city. That was the seat of the Sanhedrin, of the sages, and actually. During the destruction of the temple, there's a whole story how it was requested, the Jewish leaders requested from the Romans to at least save Yavne, that the sages will be able to continue to lead the people even after the destruction. And that was granted. And at that time, the great-great-grandson of Hillel, a man named Rabban Gamliel, was the leader. 
He was the president. In Hebrew, it was called the Nasi. He was the Nasi who resided over the, the court. It was called the Sanhedrin, the assembly of the sages, 70 sages. And Rabbi Yeshua was the vice president, known as the Av Bastin, the head of the courts. That's the way it's literally translated. But you had always the Nasi and the Av Bastin, Rabban Gamliel. Gamliel was the Nasi, the president, the highest authority. And second in command was Rabbi Yeshua. Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah, who we're talking about today. Now, in order to be a member of this court, or, let's see here in source 14, they must know all 70 languages in order that the Sanhedrin will not need to hear testimony from the mouth of a translator. This tells us something about Jewish courts and Jewish law. Translators are not to be relied upon. They can always make mistakes. We need to hear from the mouth of the witnesses of the litigants themselves. There must be at least part, there must be some members of the court that can hear directly and understand directly from the person talking without the translators in the middle. And that is why they needed to be fluent in all 70 languages, which was the spoken language of the time. And the Talmud says in Yavne, there were four. Part of when the Sanhedrin was there in Yavne at that time in history, there were four. There were four members of the Sanhedrin who were knowledgeable, who were... Who were who knew all 70 languages. And they were Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Akiva, and Shimon Atimni. Rabbi Yeshua is amongst them. Somebody who is fluent and can understand 70 languages. You can imagine, that's a whole lot of languages to know uh, and be fluent in. And perhaps somebody, some witness might come from somewhere and speak in that language. you got to know that language. To speak it, or for sure, at least to understand it. So that's the way it was. Rabbi Yeshua was in the, is in the Sanhedrin. He's the Av based in the vice president. And you have the president who's Rabbi Gamliel. This is how it ties into today when we're all waiting to hear, hopefully very soon, who is going to be our leaders, who are going to be our leaders. Rabbi Gamliel, source 15. There was a debate. Rabbi Gamliel sought to fortify the authority of this court. It's after the destruction of the temple and things are not so settled and in place amongst the Jewish people. And the only body of leadership was the Sanhedrin. And Rabbi Gamliel stood at its helm. And therefore he sought to give um, authority to the Sanhedrin, to his position, position that he held, although he was a very humble man. And there were debates. And at one point, Rabbi Yeshua debated and said a different opinion than Rabbi Gamliel. It happened once, it happened a second time, it happened a third time, and Rabbi Gamliel felt that if there's going to be different opinions, different communities following different customs and laws, it's going to get splintered, and it's not going to be good for the future of the Jewish people. So Rabbi Gamliel, his tactic was... Source 15, Rabbi Gamliel, as the Nasi, as the leader, was sitting and lecturing. He was the president. He was sitting and lecturing, sitting comfortably. And Rabbi Yeshua, all the while, was standing at his, on his feet. Although he debated him, 
but uh, because Rabbi Yeshua disagreed with Rabbi Gamliel and didn't accept the, 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 his opinion, so he didn't give him permission to sit like the rest of the students. Everybody is sitting down, Rabbi Gamliel is sitting, and Rabbi Yeshua is left standing. And out of respect for the leader, for the president, he didn't sit down, he wasn't told to sit, he was told to stand. But Rabbi Yeshua was beloved by the people. Yes, they understood Rabbi Gamliel's intentions. He had pure intentions. But nonetheless, Rabbi Yeshua's honor, Rabbi Yeshua was dishonored. He was being mocked in a way. This aroused great resentment against Rabbi Gamliel. And all of the people assembled said, how long will he continue to uh, continue afflicting him? Happened once, happened a second time. He keeps telling him to stand up and not sit down. On that day, they removed him from his position. They got together and decided, he's our leader and we have the right to remove him. And they removed Rabbi Gamliel. They appointed somebody new. At first they were saying, maybe we should appoint Rabbi Yeshua. But then they said that would be too insulting to Rabbi Gamliel. Even though he was very fit, fit, fit for the position. So they appointed somebody else. His name was Rabbi Lazar, Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah. But when that happened, Rabbi Gamliel, he accepted his removal from office and the Talmud says, and even Rabbi Gamliel did not avoid the study hall for even one moment. There was lots of Torah study on that day with the appointment of the new leader. Many halachic questions were brought up. And even Rabbi Gamliel, he didn't bear a grudge against those who removed him. He understood everyone's intentions were good. And he sat there just like everybody else, being involved with the discussions in the, in the study hall. Later, Rabbi Gamliel asked Rabbi Yeshua for forgiveness. Rabbi Yeshua forgave him. Rabbi Gamliel was reinstated, although he shared the position with Rabbi Lazar. Teaches us something about the position of leadership. While you're in position, you do your best to do what's best for the people. And that's what Rabbi Gamliel was trying to do. If it was decided by the people, by the, by the sages, that somebody else should take his place. So, that's it. I'm here with them as well. He sat there debating and studying with them. He asked forgiveness. And he forgave him. It teaches us a little bit about their character. Not taking things personal. But they're all striving to do the best for the people. Okay, let's move along to source number 16. A important teaching of Rabbi Yeshua. <clears throat> Rabbi Yeshua taught. He mentioned earlier that he said, I've never been defeated in a verbal encounter besides a young girl and a young boy. The young girl we spoke about, what's the story of the young boy? And what's its message to us? Source number 16. Here we go. One time, I was walking along the path and I saw a young boy sitting at the crossroads. Came to a fork in the road. 
Where do I go? See a young boy there, Yeshua saying. I asked the boy, I said to him, on which path shall I walk to get to the city? He was trying to get to the city, I believe it was Jerusalem. How do I get there? Which path do I take? The right, the left? So the boy said to me, this path is short and long. And that path is long and short. One path is short and long. And one is long and short. The first words he heard was short and long. Long and short. Okay, so I'll go with the one that's short and long. Short, probably short. I walked on the path that was short and long. When I approached the city, I found that gardens and orchards surrounded it. And I couldn't make my way through. I couldn't find the path. I couldn't get through the gardens and orchards. It was right there. It was right by the city. The, the city. I could see the houses. It didn't take me long to get there. It was a short road. But I couldn't get there. It was right, I was right there, but I couldn't get through. There were orchards there. There were gardens. Couldn't find the, the path in. I went back and said to the boy, I said to him, My son, didn't you tell me that this way is short? I tried. I couldn't get there. It wasn't short. He said to me, and didn't I tell you that it is long too? That it's also long? I told you short, but I always said it's short and long. I kissed him on his head and said to him, Happy are you, O Israel, for you are all exceedingly wise. From your old ones to the young ones. Yes, there are two paths, the boy told him. And Rabbi Yeshua saying, This boy defeated me. He taught me something. Some paths are short, but they're long. It's right there. Doesn't take much to get there. You can see the city, you get there real fast. But it's long. You can be right there, but for some reason it just can't get in. Path is clear. Right there is the city. But for you to get into the city through that path is long. It's not easy to get through that little that barrier at the end. Then there's a path that's long, yes. It's a long, windy path up and down till you get to the city. But in the end, it's short because it's a straight, clear path. You keep going and going and going and you get there. You'll arrive at your destination without trouble. Take time, but you'll get there. Not always things that seem short, the path that seems short is really the best path. It might seem short, but it ends up being long. A path that seems long, oy vey, what a long path. Yeah. But really, that's the best way to go. You got to work hard. You get there. But steadily, you'll get there. How does this apply to us? There's a book called the Tanya. The Tanya, we mentioned a lot of times, this book. Book written by Rabbi Shneir Zalman. First Chabad Rebbe. was first printed in 1798. End of 1798. About 220 years ago. A guide for life. And on the front page, it was called the Sharblat, the opening page of the book where the Alter Rebbe is describing what this book is about. He uses these exact words from this child that Rabbi Yeshua ben, ben Hananiah is talking about. He says, I'm going to describe to you how to serve God, how to live a meaningful life in a long, short way. A long, short way. What is he referring to? 
Let's take a look at source number 17. There are two primary paths through life. The path of faith and the path of mind. The path of faith is a short and long way. And the path of mind is a long and short way. So this is a deep concept. Uh, but just to touch upon the idea, how this relates to the story, and how this can uh, just teach us a general idea here. So there are two paths. The path of faith. And that's short. Faith. Faith is faith. But it's long. We'll see in a second why. Then there's the path of mind. And that path is long. But ultimately, it's the straight path and it's short. Of course, we have to have a fusion of both. Some faith and some mind. Source 18. The path of faith is a short way in the sense that it is the most direct route to our destination. Yeah. It's right there. But do you know how much traffic there is? <laughs> You're going to be stuck in traffic. You can see the houses. But it's hard to get there sometimes. That's faith. Faith is very important. And it's the foundation. It's a short way. That's it. God said, that's it. Well, we know, we know absolutely. I know I, I, I have faith and that's what I know and that's the truth. And that's it. You can't convince me out of it. It's not about mine. It's not about understanding. It's my faith. It's the shortest way. But the seemingly short way of faith often takes us to the very brink of our destination only to encounter an impregnable barrier. We know the truth, we desire to live it, but somehow we stop short of doing it. I know it's true. <laughs> I know. It's a short path. No questions asked. I know it's true. It's deep down inside of me. I just know this is the truth. But how to get there, how to live that faith, how that faith could influence my way of life, my feelings, my understanding, my mind, the way I think about things, the way I feel about life, what I do. Sometimes there's a barrier. It's a long way. Yes, it's short faith. Finish. Faith, faith is faith. But it's very long for that faith to influence and be applicable to your daily life. The Talmud describes it like this. Ganva, a thief, a when he's about to enter, the, to, to crawl into uh, to a home, to break in, Rachmonakar, he calls out to God. He says, God, please let me be successful in this robbery. Wait, if you're a thief, if, you're, if you believe in God, you're praying to God, so then why are you stealing? Why are you a thief? The, the same God who might help you with your prayers, he also says not to steal. So you have faith. But that faith, he has faith, he does believe in God. But that faith is, somehow doesn't fit so much with what he's doing. Yes, he has a muna, he has a neshama, he has a soul. He has, he, he's connected to Hashem and he has that faith. It's short. You know, we're, we're born with it as Jewish people. We're called ma'aminim b'nei ma'aminim. Believers, sons of believers. We believe in God, we have faith. And that's why when push comes to shove, we say, oh God, please help me. The previous Rebbe described when he was in Warsaw, Poland, in 1939, September, during the beginning of the, of the war, and how they were all in the bunk, you know, in the, what are we called, the bunker, the cellars, the bomb shelters. And all kinds of Jewish people, or millions of Jewish people living in Poland then. More religious, less religious, all kinds of different groups. But everybody, when there was one bomb that 
exploded right near them and they all felt, you know, their lives are coming to an end. They all screamed out together, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Achad. Because that's who they really are. That's faith. But for that faith to hijack, to somehow get there, to get to the city, that was long. There were barriers. Faith is faith. My mind, my heart, and my action, my feelings are somehow not always connected to that. Even if we're not stealing. But the faith is sort of not so personal, not so practical. More, more just general. What's the other path? The path that Titania is coming to help us with. That's the long and short path. Source number 19. The way of mind. That's the path that's long. But ultimately it's the correct and short path to achieving what we want to achieve. The way of mind is winding. But it is a road that leads steadily and surely to the aspired destination. In the way of mind, knowledge is the product of study. Analysis and in-depth contemplation. Feelings are born out of an intimate knowledge of the subject. Deeds are motivated by an understanding of their function, a desire for the attainment of their aim, and an abhorrence of what they forestall. It's not just faith. This is, this, you know, I'm Jewish, Torah, that's it. We got to work through it. God gave us a brain. God gave us a heart to use those things. The book of Tanya is a book of study to analyze why this world was created, how it was created, how God is involved in this world, how He orchestrates things, what is a mitzvah, what is being achieved by a mitzvah, what is a Jewish soul, what happens to our souls when we do a mitzvah, what happens to the world, why are we in this world, what is a mitzvah accomplished in this world. Why do we have struggles? What's the meaning of struggle? How to deal with our struggles? We use our minds to take this faith in God and to understand, to contemplate, to meditate, to deeply understand these things. It becomes us, not just something I believe in and when the thief is about to steal, we say, God help me. Not just when we're looking for a parking spot, we say, God help me. This is something real. Something that trickles down into our, into our beings. We use our mind. And when we understand how great God is and how intimately involved God is and what happens when we do a mitzvah, how, what happens, God forbid, when there's a sin, then it becomes us. It becomes our understanding. And that trickles down into our feelings. We, we understand that something is really good. We, uh, we have a desire for it. We, cle we, we, um, we look forward to it. We're excited about it. And we are... We have a feeling of the opposite for things that are not proper. And then, when we understand, when we feel, then that helps us in our deeds. If we really understand and are excited about something, we're going to do it. It's long. It's not easy. Study, think about it, feel for it. But it's a short path. Eventually, that's the proper path. And that's what Hasidic teaching, starting with the Tanya, helps us with. 
All from the story of Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah. That a boy taught him. Some paths are short, but end up being long. Some paths are long, but it's worth it. And it's a straight and steady path to your goal. These are some of the lessons about Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah. Today, Tuesday, lesson learn number 113. We looked at some ideas of his life. He was a great person with beautiful character. Gentle, kind, wise, caring. It all came from his mother. His mother, when she was pregnant with him, made sure the prayers were, and by the sages were being said for him. When he was a young baby, she took his carriage, took his crib, his cradle, and put him in the synagogue, put him in the study hall to be surrounded in an atmosphere of holiness. And he grew up to be a great sage. We learned from him the importance, the impressions, being in a good environment, being in a holy and divine environment, uttering words of prayer, uttering words of Torah, they make an atmosphere. Torah books, surrounding a child with good things, whether it's hanging that chapter of Psalms, having pictures of holy, great people around him, good people, being careful how we speak around them, all this can influence a child, especially when they're younger, as well as when they get older. Rabbi Yeshua was kind. As we saw, Rabbi Yeshua was... <clears throat> Rabbi Yeshua was uh, careful with how he spoke, even, even about people that he didn't right away understand their approach, their opinion. Acts of kindness is what takes the place of the temple. And Rabbi Yeshua learned that just because everybody else walked down that path, that does not mean that that's the right path. We've got to make sure ourselves that it's the right thing. It's the right thing to do. He was there to calm the people in uh, not being too extreme, taking a middle road, not to mourn too much, but to mourn nonetheless somewhat, to be thankful for what we do have, even though they couldn't rebuild the temple, not to be, not to rebel. And... Finally, to <clears throat> know that sometimes it's a long path. But ultimately, as long as it leads steadily and surely to our destination, we know we're on the right one. All right, that wraps up our Lunch and Learn today. As we do once in a while, we look at one of the lives. Some, we look at one of the sages. We look at their life that the Talmud and the Midrash records, those anecdotes, those tidbits of different uh, encounters teaching us how we should live life. It happens to us all the time. We might come to a situation, remember, hey, what did Rabbi Yeshua do in this situation? And I should follow suit. Rabbi Yeshua is buried in Israel. There is different opinions exactly where the site of his burial is. Some have it in Tiberias, Tiberia, near his teacher, Rabbi Yochanan, some have it in uh, another city in Israel where Rabbi Yeshua Bachananya continues to live on when we study his Torah teachings, we study about him, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Gamliel, sages of the Mishnah, sages of the Talmud, continue to live on when we follow in their ways. So thank you for joining our weekly Lunch and Learn. If you have any questions, comments, now is a good time. We can discuss it. And... I really hope the rest of your day and your night goes well.
And whatever happens, it's all in the hands of Hashem. And just like Rabbi Gamliel, even after he was removed from office, and later he was reinstated, we accept whatever happens. It's just part of God's plan. So, <clears throat> okay, that was Lunch and Learn at 113. Tune back in next week for Lunch and Learn number 114 for another session of Torah studying together. So it's a pleasure to study Torah together. Tune in on Zoom tomorrow evening, Wednesday at 7.30 with the Rebetzin for a woman's circle, woman's class. Thursday at 7.30 p.m. We'll be back for another episode of around our community, around our world. Episode 24. You're very welcome. And <clears throat> keep safe and keep smiling no matter what happens. And uh, be well. Great studying Torah together.